Well, good morning. Uh, it is an honor to be with you on this Palm Sunday morning. Now, before I even get into my introduction of this topic, I want you to know I have high aims this morning, and they involve you. My prayer is that you will walk out of here different than you came in. That your heart's response to a passage of scripture will be dramatically different than when you came in. That's something I can't do. No matter what words I choose to speak. The words I will use will have something to do with it. They'll be like uh, the disciples unwrapping Lazarus after Jesus had raised him from the dead. It has a little bit to do with it. But if the Lord doesn't move and the Holy Spirit does not touch hearts, that unwrapping will be in vain. So that's my prayer this morning. Now, I'm always grateful for the opportunity to preach, but I am especially grateful because I get to preach on the triumphal entry because it is one of the most fascinating uh, events in the life of Jesus to me. Now, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Matthew uh, chapter 21. That's where we'll be, Matthew chapter 21. The triumphal entry is one of those events or one of those passages of Scripture that does not easily hand over its treasures. If you're a half-hearted reader of this passage, you'll miss it. You have to spend time with it. For example... When you hear the prophet Zechariah say to you, behold, your king is coming to you. How much does that fill your heart with joy? I think for most of us in this room, it does a little something. Those are encouraging words. But I believe for many, it does not do what it can do because they don't have a good understanding of the triumphal entry. And so my goal this morning is to unpack some of Palm Sunday's riches. And then at the end of this sermon, I will repeat those words, Behold, your king is coming to you. And if I have proclaimed them well, and if the, the spirit moves, those words will cause your heart to sing. So pay attention to your heart this morning. We're called to do that every time we enter the congregation to worship with worship the Lord. But this morning, I'm asking you to do that. Let us, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for you and what you've done for us. And I do pray that this morning, your spirit will move. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11 is what we'll be reading this morning. There are uh, obviously other areas in Scripture that cover this, but this is the one we'll focus on. Starting in verse 1 of Matthew 21, it says this. Now, when they knew, drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied. And a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, 
Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. Those were palm branches, obviously. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is Jesus. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, as we look at this passage, I want to look at it in two cents. So this is your outline for the morning. First, we're going to look at it from the perspective of the people. And then we are going to look at it from the perspective of Jesus. So what is the, the perspective of the people? To understand this scene, we need to understand who these people were. Now, they are on the outskirts of Jerusalem, heading into Jerusalem. So these are people on the outskirts, so to speak. The people who would have been there would not have been considered the cultural elites. They would not have been the wealthy. They would have had economic woes, health care woes, uh, stress with their employment, etc. All the things we tend to have. They were politically dissatisfied. They were Hebrew by nationality and religion, yet they were ruled by Rome. Jerusalem had been uh, uh, occupied by Roman rule. Now, the, the Jewish leaders, they had been taught all uh, through the Old Testament even that a savior king was going to come and deliver them. And now Jesus has been doing, uh, speaking and doing miracles for almost three years now. And right before this event, he raised Lazarus from the dead. This is the first public appearance since that event. And the word had spread, John's account of this tells us that that word had spread. So when Jesus starts riding in, that's in their mind. They're excited. They've heard about that. Now, there had been many times before that the people would have made him king, but Jesus never allowed them to do so. Now, these people, once again, they're poor, they have illnesses, they're living under an illegitimate government. And so when Jesus comes riding in, they have high expectations for Jesus. They want all of that taken care of. He's healed the sick and all my woes and stress. I just want all of it gone. Now, uh, once again, the people here, they, they, uh, he's coming. So they begin to gather. Now, many Bible scholars estimate that this could have been as many as 3,000 people lining the path. Remember, it said the whole city was stirred up by this. This wasn't 25 people uh, kind of walking alongside him. 3,000 people lining the path. And they do three things. The first thing they do is uh, they line the streets with their garments. Now, what does this mean? 
Well, obviously it is to honor him, but it is more than that. This is part of an enthronement ceremony. If you read the book of Kings, uh, specifically 2 Kings chapter 9, especially with the uh, enthronement of Jehu as king, they do this exact thing. They lay out their garments to make a path for him. They are declaring him a political ruler. Now, the second thing they do is they begin to wave palm branches. Now, what does the palm branch signify? Any of you know the old Southern gospel song, Palms of Victory, Palms of Glory. It is about victory. They would do this two different, on two different occasions in the Old Testament or in, in, in Jewish history. One, when a king went out and defeated an enemy, conquered an army, sometimes when they came back, they would do this. They would wave the palm branches saying, you, uh, you've delivered us the victory politically, militarily. Now, there's also something else in the back of this mind that many of us wouldn't, may not be aware of. In the intertestamental period between um, uh, Malachi and Matthew, something happened about 150 years earlier with Judas Maccabees. Judas Maccabees uh, was a, a ruler in Jerusalem that accomplished some sort of little bit of a political overthrow of Rome. And they did this for him as well. So you're getting the picture? They're expecting Jesus to come in and overthrow Rome. Now, the other thing they did was they would sometimes do this when a king would go out. So the victory hadn't happened yet, but they, would, they were expecting it to happen. So those are the first two things they did. And the third thing they do is they cry, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, David was a favorite king of Israel, obviously. And they believed that this, what Jesus was the, the, uh, the Messiah, which he is. But they're looking at him through the lens of military might. When they cry Hosanna, as David uh, mentioned this morning, that is a, a term of praise and exaltation, but couched in that language is the idea, save us now. And they're crying out for political salvation. So the people are, are excited to have Jesus as their conquering king. Um, now realize this, this claim to be king and Jesus allowing them to do this was going to get him killed. This was a primary instance that got Jesus killed. Remember, when he died, what did the sign say over his head? King of the Jews. The Jews said, no, that's not him. And the Romans said, yes, let me show you what happens when a political ruler tries to overthrow us. They also put a crown of thorns on his head, a crown. This moment is a catalyst for the death of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to ask this question. How could the Jewish people go from praising him one day to shouting crucify less than a week later? 
Now, it is true. Some of the people that were there shouting uh, Hosanna one day may not have been there shouting crucify him later. But it is likely that some of the same people were there. Remember, the whole city was stirred up by this. And I believe the whole city was stirred up to praise him and the whole city was stirred up to uh, condemn him. Why did this happen? Because all of their expectations of Jesus were worldly. They wanted Jesus on their terms, not his. And throughout the week, they started seeing him fail to do what they wanted him to do. He didn't go on Monday to the Roman centers of political authority. He went to the temple and started going after the Jews themselves. This is why they chose Barabbas over Jesus. Who was Barabbas? He was a failed insurrectionist. And they said, well, he may be a failed insurrectionist, but at least he was trying to overthrow Rome. Give us him over Jesus. If you want people to turn on you, fail to meet their expectations. This is why worldly honor will always be fickle. Yet we chase it like it's the Holy Grail so often in our own lives. In the 1500s, there's a painter named Tintoretto who painted a picture of the crucifixion. And there's so much going on in that picture. But there's one little section where a man is sitting on a donkey in the background while Christ is on the cross. And that donkey is eating withered palm branches. And he was depicting the fact that worldly honor is just like that. Empty and will not last. I'm here to tell you right now, whether you have worldly honor now or not, don't expect things to stay the same for long. This is the world we live in. And so for them, Jesus had let them down. He was not the victor they thought he was. And his death on Friday seemed to solidify that point. How can he be our king when he's dead? They saw Jesus as someone who was swept up in a political fervor and it got him killed. Now, before I move on to Jesus' perspective, let me just ask this question. What are our expectations of Jesus? Are they too worldly? Do we expect him to always keep us from illness and disappointed if he doesn't? Does he let us down when our work is difficult and we can't get the success we're hoping for? Do we start to be disappointed in Jesus? Are we disappointed when the other political party wins? Lord, we were praying. Why didn't you move? Bring it a little bit closer to our own personal lives. Do we expect half-hearted Christianity to make us happy? It won't. As a friend of mine put it this way, he goes, so many of us 
we expect Jesus to be our self-esteem servant. And the minute my self-esteem starts going down and I feel a little blue, Jesus isn't doing what he's supposed to do. Here we are. We expect Christianity to be a formula to get what we want. But what do we do? We resist the spirit. We neglect the church. We nurse our pet sins. Then we come to church and we sing praises. And we wonder why Jesus isn't filling our lives with abundant joy. We have false expectations. We are the people on the road so often, even as believers. But in the triumphal entry, if we pay attention, we're going to see that Jesus is calling us to change our expectations. Because what he has to offer is so much better than what we've been longing for. So let's talk about Jesus' viewpoint here. I'm going to give you this in three points. The people saw Jesus as coming in, being swept up in a political fervor that got him killed. That wasn't Jesus' perspective. Jesus was setting his crucifixion in motion. Jesus had been telling the disciples for weeks now that he was going to die. And at one point, what does Peter say? Far be it from me, Lord, that'll never happen to you. And what does Jesus say to Peter? We all know the first line, get thee behind me, Satan. That's the part that always sticks with us. But what else did he say? For you are thinking about the things of man, not the things of God. Even Peter's uh, expectations were off at that moment. Jesus was not being swept up in a political fervor. He was not being moved by the principalities and powers he was orchestrating them. His time had come and he was setting his death in motion. He said, internally, it is time for me to die. Get a donkey. And he rode that donkey instead of walked. Because had he walked, he could have said, well, you know, they were trying to praise me as king, but I didn't want him to do that. No, when he got up on the donkey, he was saying, I am king. And I will not deny it because my time has come. He was in that moment purposefully bringing the wrath of both the Jewish and the Roman rulers upon himself. There's an amazing verse in Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28, where uh, Peter had just been pulled up in front of the, uh, the councils to be questioned. And he goes back because he's facing some persecution. And the disciples begin to pray and they say this in Acts 4, 27. For in fact, in this city, in Jerusalem, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together 
against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. So here's, here's the intro. All of these political powers are at work to destroy Jesus. But what does the next verse say? To do whatever your hand, O God, had predestined to do. All of this was planned. As he set his death in motion, he was showing us that his kingdom is different. And we get a glimpse of this difference when we read the prophecy in Zechariah. It's quoted for us in Matthew 21, verse 5. It says, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. He was the promised king, but he was riding on a donkey, an animal of peace. He did not come in riding on a white horse with political might to conquer. He's saying, my kingdom is not what you expect. All the things you think are important right now are not. Later this week, he was going to be confronted uh, by the Jewish leaders, and they were going to try to capture, trap him between two political forces, the Jewish people, uh, the Jewish leadership, and the Roman leadership. And they say to him, who should, uh, or should the Jewish people pay taxes to Caesar? And of course, the, the, the problem with that question is if he says no, he makes the Jews happy, but he uh, makes the Romans angry. And if he says yes, he makes Rome happy and uh, makes the Jews angry. So they think they've got him trapped. What does he say? Give me a coin. He says, whose image is on this? Caesar's. Well, then give Caesar what's Caesar's. But give God what is God's. All of this is he's saying, you're missing the point completely. You think the true value of all of this is found in little coins with images posted on them? There is something so much deeper and so much more significant. My kingdom is different. That's why he comes riding on a donkey. He is coming for the broken and the contrite, but to do so, he must be humbled and broken himself. He came to die and he is making this happen. That's point one. Second thing, point two, there seems to be a fact that he is fulfilling a typology or a, a, a Old Testament law regarding Passover. You see, Jesus, when he came, he said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. I'm going to do everything that's required in the law, but I'm also going to fulfill all the ceremonial aspects. Now, if you'll remember, Palm Sunday, uh, the, the week of, of the Passion, Passover is on Thursday. Now, there's something we know about this. Well, first of all, just remember, Passover is the... Uh, the final plague, they're in Egypt. Jesus is, or the, the Lord is setting them free. 
And the final plague is going to be the worst. It's going to be the death of the firstborn in every household. And so what uh, God instructs them to do is kill a lamb and then put the blood of that lamb on the doorpost, on the top and on both sides. And when the angel of death comes, he will pass over your house. You will be safe. And so all of Israel does this. And they had been celebrating this day, commemorating it since that happened. And so here they are. It's the 14th day of the month is coming up on, thir uh, on Thursday. By the way, our calendar this year just happens to line up perfectly. The 14th is Thursday. But if you were looking at a calendar today then, what is today's date? It's the 10th. Well, the 10th was very significant when it comes to the Passover. Matthew Henry pointed out that the Passover was on the 14th of the month and the triumphal entry was on the 10th day. And if you read Exodus chapter 12, uh, verses three, uh, I'll, I'll read a few verses for you here, basically, um, that tells people what to do on the 10th day of the month. It says this, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, the month of Passover, Every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. Skipping verse four, going to verse five to, to stay in the focus here. It says, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or the goats and you may keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. The 10th day of the month of the uh, month of Passover was lamb selection day. Most of these people that were out and about were probably out getting their lambs for Passover. And it seems to me in typological fashion that when the people start praising Jesus saying, Hosanna in the son of, high, uh, son, son of David. They are selecting the Passover lamb for sacrifice. They didn't know what they were doing, but Jesus knew. Now here's the third point, and it flows from the first two. It's assumed in the first two, but now I just want to highlight it. Point number three is Jesus knew that he was marching to his death. Think about the fact that he knew this. He knew that by the end of the week, he would be spit upon and beaten. He knew some that were shouting Hosanna one day would shout crucify him a few days later. He knew when he cursed the fig tree later that week, that the curse that that uh, represented, he would bear on the cross. He could see Judas's betrayal. He could see the uh, drops of sweat that he would uh, bleed in the garden. He could see Peter's betrayal, the scattering of the 12 disciples. He could see the physical torment of the crucifixion. But worse than all of that, he could see the wrath of God 
spiritually poured out upon him for every one of our sins. That was by far the worst. Let me give you an example. Let's say you're, uh, you're walking along and you hit your knee on a chair and your knee is hurting pretty bad. But in that process, you then fall and break your arm. Now you're sitting there with a broken arm. How much attention are you paying to your knee? You, begin, you, you almost forget about the knee because now something worse is happening. R.C. Sproul actually suggests that possibly when Jesus was on the cross and the Lord, uh, the Father pours out the wrath that your sins and my sins deserve, uh, deserve upon Jesus, that at that moment, he might not have even felt the nails. That is how significant that he was going, what he was going to face. So he knew all of this was coming. Just the thought of it caused him to sweat blood, as we mentioned. But know this, Jesus had set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. He was not going to stop. What motivated him? What motivated him to keep going, knowing all of this was coming? First and foremost would have been his desire to glorify his father. There is no motivation in the life of Jesus that is higher than that one. But the father had said, here's how you will glorify me. Go there and save them. The father loved us so much that he sent his son. And Jesus loved the father and us so much. He said, I will go. So as Jesus is getting ready to ride into Jerusalem and set all of this in motion, maybe he saw our face, you who are believers, knowing that without his death, he would have to watch us die because we are all sinners condemned, needing to pay sin's wages. Maybe he looked at us as a man would look into his bride as disease steals her away. What were the symptoms of the disease he saw in us? He would have saw every single one of our evil deeds, our filthy thoughts, our poor attitudes. He would have saw every sinful thought. He would have saw every one of our worldly expectations of him and he would have saw us be disappointed in him when he didn't meet them. He would have saw all of our misguided worship when we come with half-hearted hearts and we say, I'm here for my blessing. And we're disappointed when he doesn't deliver. And he saw that and he looked at you and he said, I'm coming to save you. Because without me, you will have to die for your sins.
and he reached his destination. And his destination was upright between two thieves, nailed to a cross, and having a spear in his side. The cleansing blood and water at that moment flowed. And he cried, it is finished. He would pay our price. He said, you're worried about me breaking the powers of Rome? I came to break the powers of hell over your life. You're worried about physical sickness or maybe enough money? I came to set you free from something so much greater, a debt you could never pay. I came to give eternal life to everyone who will come to me in faith. And you're worried about the temporal one. That's why I did it, because I loved you. Whatever his motivation, nothing could stop him. The almighty king of kings would not fail to redeem his people. In the words of the old spiritual, we can say, ride on, King Jesus, no one can hinder thee. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's not coming to eliminate all of your problems now. He's coming later on a white horse. And he will conquer politically and he will conquer all of his enemies. But we would never want that if he did not first come on a donkey to set his death in motion because none of us could stand when he returned on a white horse if it wasn't for his sacrifice. We would all be, death, be put to death at that moment. He's not coming to eliminate all your problems now. He's coming to give you something better. He's coming to save you from your sins and offer you eternal life. Do you recognize him now? Do you see him coming on that donkey? Because he did that, and we will now be able to stand when he returns on his white horse, know this, you are only temporarily sick. You are only temporarily poor. You are only temporarily under illegitimate governments. You are only temporarily lonely. You are only temporarily persecuted, but you are entirely forgiven. You have been washed clean in the blood of Christ if you trust in him. The cup of wrath that you and I deserved is empty because Jesus said, get a donkey. Shout Hosanna in the highest. I will say it one last time. Picture Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey and hear him say to you, behold, your king is coming to you. Let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you 
for who you are. That you didn't leave us to just our sinful desires. You came to give us what we needed, not what we thought we needed. We thank you that because of what you have done, every one of our evil deeds, our filthy thoughts, have been washed clean in your blood, Lord. I pray that if there's someone here who does not know you, that this morning you have made their heart alive with faith and that they will come to you and find forgiveness in you. And I pray for those of you, for those of everybody here who already know you, Lord, I pray that they will be just moved, that their heart will sing as they go into this week. We thank you and praise you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.